This morning we'll continue our exploration into emptiness, coming to it from a different angle. And one of the ways that the Buddha taught many things is to help us see the way the way we block seeing clearly. And in the case of emptiness, one of the ways to do that is to see how we, what we see, what we do that blocks our ability to see it, how we fill up the world and block our ability to see its empty nature. This way of exploring the ways we fill up or the ways that are unskillful is a method that the Buddha used a lot. And uh, like a very simple example of this is often he talks about non-greed, non-hatred, non-delusion. And I remember when I started practicing, I was like, non-greed. That's not, that's like the end of the path, non-greed. That's, that's rather uninspiring. <laughs> Um, But then as I practiced more, I realized that he was pointing to that when greed is dropped, then there's a whole myriad of possibilities. There's generosity, there's metta, there's joy, there's open-heartedness of all kinds. So by seeing the way that we are constrained and having insight into that and letting that go, then our eyes open, our hearts open, and there's many possibilities. So we can look at the emptiness, at emptiness from n- naming the different sides, and we can also look at it from seeing what blocks it and trying to loosen that up. And we're doing both of these this week, back and forth. And one of the ways that we really get in the way of seeing emptiness is we fill the world with our idea of me, of me and our ideas about what is out there. This is from Dogen. He says, when the self goes forward to fill the myriad things, this is delusion. When the myriad things come in to fill the self, this is enlightenment. So what are the ways we go out and fill the world with this, I, this sense of self? How do we do that? Seeing our greed, aversion, and delusion, seeing these veils that coat us. Last night, Sally spoke to one of the ways that we go out and fill the world. One. Uh, lens through which we can see with our ideas that the world is permanent, reliable, and this sense of self. When we view things through that lens, we're not open to seeing clearly. We don't see what's really happening, that things are changing, that this sense of I is constructed. The Buddha also pointed in the Bihiya Sutta that I read to you earlier to another way of approaching this. 
In that sutta, there's a, it's about a man, Bahia, and it's a wonderful story. He's, pra- he pract- he's practicing on the far side of India at the same time as the Buddha's teaching, and he's practicing diligently, and it appears in the sutta that he's revered by those who um, see him, who know him, in that he receives plentiful alms food, he's offered places to stay, people come and listen to him. So he, he's doing his best. And at some point, though, he, he wonders, okay, am I an arhant? Am I on the path to being an arhant? And a uh, uh, deva, hearing him ask this question in his mind, comes to him and says, no. Sorry, you're not an arhant, and you're not even on the path to being an arhant. Well, I think as a sign of actually the depth of his practice, he doesn't argue with the deva. Instead, he says, well, who is? How do I learn about this? You know, what is the right path? And the deva says, well, there's this Buddha over on the other side of India, and he's teaching now, and he's got, he knows how to do this. And Bahia says, okay. And he, the story goes, he walks all night to get there. Either a night is a really long time, or he had some magical qualities. (laughs) But he got to the Buddha the next day, during the time when the Buddha was out getting alms food. So first he goes and tries to find him, and they say, he's getting alms, he'll be back later. And Bahia's like, no, I need to find the Buddha now. And he goes and he finds the Buddha and sees that he's radiant and says, yeah, I want to hear from this guy. And he says, Buddha, please tell me the teachings. And he bows down to the Buddha, and the Buddha goes, no, no, no. I'm getting my food. You know, this isn't the right time. We'll talk about it later. Pia says, no, no, I need to know now. And then finally, the third time, he says, Buddha, we don't know what will happen to you, what will happen to me. He obviously understood impermanence. I need the instructions now. And the Buddha, it's really great to get the Buddha when he wants to go get his food because his instructions are very succinct and brief and clear. So those are the, these are the instructions if you're on your way to a meal. <laughs> you should train yourself thus. In reference to the scene, there will be only the scene. In reference to the herd, only the herd. In reference to the sensed, only the sensed. In reference to the cognized, only the cognized. That is how you should train yourself. When for you there will be only the seen in reference to the seen, only the heard in reference to the heard. And actually I'm going to pause. I should have said, this is, you do have a copy of this on page five, um, number eight, if it would be helpful for you to follow along. Some of us are more visual. It helps. So in the middle... When for you there will be only the seen in reference to the seen, only the heard in reference to the heard, only the sensed in reference to the sensed, 
only the cognized in reference to the cognized, then there is no you in connection with that. There is no you in connection with that. When there is no you in connection with that, there is no you there. When there is no you there, you are neither here nor yonder nor between the two. This, just this, is the end of stress. And stress here is Tanisarobiko's translation of dukkha. There is, that is the end of dukkha. So here the Buddha is pointing to a very direct experience of the senses. And I'm going to be talking first about this senses, and then we'll come back to those questions of no you there. But first, the simplicity of in these different sense gates, there is just the experience of the sense gate. There is no you in connection with that. There is simply hearing, hearing being known, sensations of the body being known. Very simple, direct experience. This relates to an idea, a concept in the teachings. It's almost hard to say concept because it's pointing to complete non-concept. I'll say a word in the suttas called atamayata. And this word, the core of it is maya, to concoct or make things, to produce, fabricate. And tam, tam maya, tam is that. And a is not. So when you put all that together, it is the state of not being made up or made from that. So simply, not made of that. So atamayata is the state of not being made up of that. It, where it's mentioned in the suttas, this is very important. It's mentioned as part of the state of an arhant and also as a pointing towards the relationship with the world as we move in that direction. So it's a very, very high level of attainment. If, you, if we don't all accomplish Atamayata this week, it's okay. But it also is useful to explore it as an invitation to an approach to a way of relating with the world. Not made of that. So I might say a little bit about tamayata, without the A, to be made of that. What does that mean? The fashioning, to be made, make things up. How do we identify or construct things in this world? We go out and fabricate the world, fabricate our experience, fabricating the me. And as I said before, in doing this, we 
we put on veils that we don't see what's there, this process of fabricating. Maya, if you're more familiar, you might be more familiar with the word sankara, and maya is really a synonym for sankara, the concocting, compounding, the conditioned. So the atamayata is unconcoctability, a state of mind independent of the objects and conditions of experience. Interesting idea, a mind independent of the objects and conditions of experience. There's two ways to look at this independence and I wanna explore both of them. One is the subject side and the other is the object side. So if we're in a bound up connected relationship with experience or with an object. We can look at the way we create an I that is seeing that, the subject to the object. So we can look at the subject side, the identification, the me that is doing it, the me that is seeing. Or we can also look at the object side. How are we creating this object? What do we believe or ideas we have about what is out there? So there's these two sides, the subject-object side of experience. And Atamayata is referencing breaking down both of these. So I wanna talk first to the internal, to this movement towards dropping the eye, the non-identification with the subject side of experience. So as I mentioned at the beginning, it can be helpful to see the ways that we create the eye, create the subject side. And the primary way we do this is through our thinking, through our thought patterns. On the crudest way, In fact, one of the ways that becomes most obvious to us, right when the first time you sat down to meditate and you saw your thoughts, and it's like, wow, look at this event that's happening. I remember uh, um, teaching my sister to meditate a little bit, and it didn't take her long when she, she just said, wow, there's all these thoughts, and I am not my thoughts. She was very sweet. She planted a uh, plant in honor of the self she had thought she was. It's very sweet. So these thoughts, this proliferation, papancha, you may be familiar with that word. This is from the Majjama, 18. What one feels, that one perceives. What one perceives, that one thinks about. What one thinks about, that one mentally proliferates. With such conceptual proliferations, papancha, 
as the source, the heart is beset by mental perceptions and notions characterized by the prolific tendency with respect to past, future, and present forms cognizable through the eye, ear, nose, tongue, body, and mind. So we take these simple sense experiences and instead of letting them there, we start thinking, we perceive, and then we start thinking about them and we proliferate. (sighs) If nothing is found there to delight in, welcome, and to hold to, this is the end of the underlying tendencies to lust, aversion, views, doubt, conceit, desire for being, and ignorance. This is the end of resorting to weapons, quarrels, brawls, disputes, recrimination, malice, and false speech. Here, these harmful, unwholesome states cease without remainder. Without remainder. Remainder. Yeah. Wow, that's powerful. If we stop propancha, if we stop this proliferation, all that is possible. That's inspiring to me. So one of the things you probably have already come to realize is we don't get to liberate ourselves through thinking. This is not to diminish the usefulness of thinking. We're reflecting, studying. These are useful. But the liberation doesn't happen in the proliferation. It's through seeing through that. Another way that we create this uh, internal identity is through manati, or the creation of me, the me-making, the I-making. All the conceptions about me. Sally got us started last night in exploring this sense of I, this I that goes out and fills the world as Sally has pointed out, it's like we go around with the spotlight on ourselves. Or as Philip Moffat, I think, says quite beautifully, we go around the star of our movie. Each of us starring in our own movie, hardly aware that there are so many other movies going on simultaneously and nobody's watching ours. But doesn't doesn't decrease the uh, the ratings of our movie for us. Sometimes that sense of I, that eye-making, can be very subtle. I remember in um, some very deep states of concentration, states of absorption, watching that everything would be still and quiet, and then I'd feel this little, like, blip rise up. I. I. It was like, really? You know, even here, this sense of I, this I'm somehow still want to be here. I'm in a concentrated state, very subtle, but still arising. It's very uh, pervasive, this I. If we don't get caught up in this self, 
If we don't start with the eye, then the papancha doesn't come in the same way. This is from the book The Island by Ajahn Amaro and Pasana. There's a few, there's a number of quotes both in your study and I will read from them. From this, it's a wonderful book. That is to say that if, with mindfulness and wisdom, the tendency to go out into perceptions, thoughts, and emotions is restrained, and one just allows seeing to be seeing, hearing to be hearing, etc., the whole papancha drama does not get launched in the first place. The heart then rests at ease, open and clear. All perceptions conventionally labeled as myself or the world are seen as transparent, if convenient, fictions. If we don't get this whole me and I and the papancha going, we have a greater chance of dropping into this simplicity of I, of the seeing is just the seeing. Leaving the realm of the conceiving, of the conceived, of the ideas, the concepts. There's also then the object side. The object side that we create, the external. And the word, the idea of this came from ideas of ancient India, but it still applies now where the idea was your eye, your eye went out and somehow like wrapped itself around what you saw and brought it back and formed it in your head. Well, I'm not sure our eye actually, the ray goes out and wraps around something and comes back. We now have a different understanding of that. But there's still this way that what is inside our minds is created through this sense contact. And what is out there, then we recreate in some way internally. But the actual seeing of something, the hearing of something, happens inside our head. It's not that there's nothing out there. But the way we see, the way we experience is happening inside us, in our own experience, in our own internal mechanism. Sometimes it can be helpful to take apart some of uh, experience, our own and others, to see this more clearly. Like one uh, little interesting tidbit is that when we're looking our eyes are making these constant little micro movements. Like if we're looking at a person, what we think we see is a whole person. But actually, it, we put together the person inside our head. What our eyes actually see is a little set of micro snapshots of moving around, taking in all these different images and putting it together inside us. We're not seeing a person in a way we think they are, that the way we think we are. It's sort of like when we see a movie. We, th- we all enjoy the illusion of the movie, but we know full well it's not quite what we think it is as we watch it. It's not all happening there. 
It's an illusion. Sometimes it can be helpful to start to break down this uh, the idea that we have that the world is the way we perceive it by understanding that others perceive it differently. Sometimes we get to do that um, just interculturally. This is one of the great gifts of the diversity of cultures and people in our world that from others we can learn and see that the way we're seeing the world is not the way it necessarily is. And we can take it even one step further and with modern science we have the chance of looking and trying to understand somehow animals see the world. And it's interesting because even though some of these I'll tell you some of the pieces, but it always interests me. It's like, this is how we think animals perceive the world, but it's still limited by our ability to understand, right? What more will we someday understand about the way animals see it? I'll take a very extreme version. Um, Snakes, not all snakes, but certain... Uh, families of snakes not only have eyes that see as we do, or similar to, they don't actually see quite with, but they also have these other um, pits that are sensing the world, seeing the world through infrared. Now, a bunch of years ago, you know, a hundred years ago, we may not have had any chance of knowing that snakes are actually seeing heat that they form a shape of someone, of animals based on heat. And where we think there might be a wall or, you know, you go camping and there's some snake there and you think, well, if I just put something in the way, he won't be able to see me. Not true. I think back to a, rattlesnake I once he was in my yard and I had to put him in a bucket and put a lid on the bucket and then I was afraid of releasing him when he was so activated so I put him in a great big chest freezer for a little while to cool him down and I now I'm thinking wow he was in that chest freezer looking at me What did his world look like? I did let him out of the freezer and found him a new spot. Frogs don't see things that stay still. They can be surrounded by bugs. And if the bugs don't move, they're safe. They only see movement. What would your world be like if you only saw movement? What would you think was out here? ones. uh, Bees don't see red. So what, when you take red out of the spectrum, then the colors that we see in flowers are different than what they see. And also they see the ultraviolet. This is true of many insects. So we look at a petal 
and it looks like it's all yellow. It's a yellow petal. I know what a yellow petal looks like. Not to an insect, not to a bee. It actually has multiple different colors in that distance of the petal. There are pictures online that you can see of what it might look like. I like the word might, because how do we know? Might look like to a bee of all these layers of color pointing towards the middle of the flower, and we just see a yellow. Or what about hearing? Wax moths hear things 150 times higher sounds than we hear in order to hear the sonar of bats, in order to get away from them. Very important skill they have. So what are they hearing besides bats? Or elephants hear frequencies 20 times lower than we hear. Listening in the forest. Pigeons have the lowest frequency hearing of any animal. They can hear storms happening in far distant places. And they also have, their range is the largest of any animal and goes very high. So they are living in this auditory world that we have no idea. So is it their world? Is that the real world? Or is the one you see the real world? One last example. Dolphins and porpoises and whales hear incredibly wide range in the ocean. So we think we see the ocean. We know what the ocean looks like. You know, we map it, right, with uh, all sorts of advanced tools. But they hear the ocean. What is that? Do all these perceptions overlap, replace each other? What is, what is actually out there? What is in here? As we start to let ourselves feel into this, it helps break down the idea, the surety, that what is happening in our perception is a, an absolute replica of the outside world. And this is helpful because there's a way that it helps break down the way we put ourselves out in the world, concoct it up, and believe the stories we tell. This is from uh, Bhikkhu Nanananda in a series of talks that he gave. He explains that tamaya, that's the concocting side of this, is derived from tad maya, literally made of that or of that stuff. Hence, as a result of clinging, we practically become one with the objects. 
So we make them up and then we grab a hold of them. And we grab a hold of them. We practically become one with the object due to the thought, I am the one who has attained. In other words, I am the one who knows this. I know that, and now I've grabbed a hold of it. Whereas the the arhant is called atamayo, in the sense that he does not identify himself or herself with anything. He or she is no longer made of that. I think this is a good place for the phrase that appears many times in the sutta in different places. One place in the Sutta Napada, it says, in whatever way they conceive, talking about um, us, the worldlings who don't yet understand this, in whatever way they conceive, it turns out to be otherwise. So you can always fall back on that. Whatever way we conceive, it is always otherwise. There's also some writing that um, Ajahn Buddhadasa, who was a Thai, very well-respected Thai forest monk of the last century, and he got became very interested in this word, atamayata, and really brought it back into the forefront. He, it, it's in the Pali suttas. It's not like he had to make it up. It was in the suttas, but in many ways had maybe been ignored or misinterpreted. And he started exploring this word. And in that process, he devised a system of nine insights that one has on the way to full awakening. And the last three of these, sunata, which is emptiness, tatata, which is suchness, and atamayata. So I want to read you a quote from his writing. And actually, this is about what he found. It's from the island, from Ajahn Amaro and Pasano. Three qualities describe the upper reaches of spiritual refinement. Sunata, voidness or emptiness. Tatata, thusness or suchness. And atamayata, non-identification or not-thatness. The three qualities speak to the nature of experience when many of the coarser defilements have fallen away. When the qualities of emptiness and suchness are considered, Even though the conceit of identity might already have been seen through, there can still remain subtle traces of clinging, clinging to the idea of an objective world being known by a subjective knowing, even though no sense of I is discernible at all. There can be a feeling of a this, which is knowing a that, And that's obviously really clear when the I is here. We can feel that. There's a this knowing of that. And either saying yes to it in the case of suchness or no 
in the case of emptiness. Atamayata is the closure of that whole domain, expressing the insight that there is no that. It is a genuine collapse of both the illusion of separateness, of subject and object, and also of the discrimination between phenomena as being somehow substantially different from each other. Complete collapse of the this and the that. In a lot of ways, what we're speaking here is at this point a complete non-dual understanding, experience of the world. Know this, know that. So returning to those lines of the Bahia Sutta, just those last few, then there is no you in connection with that. Since you, if there's just the her, herd in the herd, there's no you making that happen. When there is no you in connection with that, then there is no you there. That's how we make up the you. That's how I make up the I, by having a that. It takes both sides. When there is no you there, you are neither here nor yonder nor between the two. And the especially important line, this, just this, is the end of dukkha. So I want to say a little bit about how, how, do we, how can we actually use this? What can we, how can we practice with this atamayata? And one way is on a very straightforward, not being getting caught up in things, not grabbing a hold of them in the same way of believing they're real and solid. Santakaro Bhikkhu, a student of... Um, Buddha Dasa's wrote a paper and it's titled Just Say No with Atamayata. And he talks about, in that he talks about the Buddha's journey is in many ways a process of saying no. He said no to the palace life. He went in practice with a couple of very experienced and attained masters in concentration. And he was like, nope, states of bliss. No, they're just states of bliss. Not going to go there. Not going to stay there. No to the asceticism that Brian brought up the other day. That's not the answer. And ultimately, a no to all ways of creating ignorance, of hanging on to that. And we can say no in little ways and big ways through our lives. Can say, you know, think of all the ways that things are created around us and pointed to us and made important. Can you see that it's just a thing? That you can cut that, it's just color and form and shape, nothing there to want. I spent a couple years on a little project for myself. I allowed myself to only buy one thing a month. It was really useful. I already wasn't necessarily someone who 
bought a lot, but I found that really helped me like look at a thing and go, it's just a thing. What, what could possibly, what else, why would I need it? What do I really need that thing for? Cutting that thread of belief. We can do this in our own minds, watching how we start to proliferate and create ideas and just say no. One of the instructions I like to give that I think is so useful, drop it mid-sentence. When that papancha starts, just drop it mid-sentence. Just let go of that belief that that thought needs to be finished, that, that, that you have to follow that channel. And then moving into subtler un- levels of understanding with this. Relaxing the belief that what we see is real. Dropping the fixation on right and wrong, on the idea that you know, or that you should know, if you don't know, that you should figure it out. Maybe not. Sogni Rinpoche, who... Uh, guy brought in last night said I'm not saying that you're not real just not real in the way you think you are so watching how we get a fixed idea this is also in your um, in your study number 11 let's see I'm sorry, number 10. This is from Upasaka Ki, a wonderful uh, Thai woman uh, master. She says, she was a lay practitioner, I think. The knowing that lets go of knowing is very beneficial. There's no getting stuck, no grabbing hold of your knowledge or views. If the knowledge is right, you let go. If the knowledge is wrong, you let go. This is called knowing the letting go of knowing without getting entangled. This kind of knowing keeps the mind from latching on to whatever arises. As soon as you know something, you've let it go. As soon as you know something, you've let it go. The mind just keeps on staying empty, empty of mental fabrications and thoughts, empty of every sort of illusion that could affect the mind. You may recall the Buddha speaking to this in very direct terms. This elusive quality. Form is like a lump of foam. Feeling like a water bubble. Perception is like a mirage. Volitions like a plantain trunk. And consciousness like an illusion. The Buddha didn't mince any words there. Pointing to our experience of the world. And ultimately, this word, this movement towards complete dropping of the subject-object duality, moving into the non-dual. And we can practice with this in a simple way. Dropping your thoughts of the past. Dropping thoughts of the future. Dropping your thoughts of the present. 
simply resting in the direct experience. This is from Sin Sin Ming, and it's in the thing, but you don't, I'll just read it. You can find it later. Do not remain in the dualistic state. Avoid such pursuits carefully. If there is even a trace of this and that, of right and wrong, the mind essence will be lost in confusion. And a last quote from the island. The aim of all these teachings on Atamayata is to show us that the dualities of subject and object, me and the world, do not have to be brought into being at all. And when the heart is restrained from going out and awakens to its fundamental nature, a bright and joyful peace is what remains. This is the peace of Nibbana. And I'll end with the, at the end of the Bahia Sutta, the Bahia, it turns out, after hearing those instructions, completely awakens. He had done, he had done his preliminaries, I guess, and he was ripe. So, and, and he very soon after was gored by a cow and died. So his urgency was was well-founded. And the Buddha, at the end of the sutta, acknowledging the bahia that had died and saying that he was a fully awakened one. And then ends with a uh, piece of poetry for him. Where water, earth, fire, and wind have no footing, there the stars don't shine, the sun isn't visible. There the moon doesn't appear, there darkness is not found. I'm going to read that again. And as you hear it, realize that each one of these is a concept. And what is it, not just that darkness, as we conceive of it, but the concept isn't there. Where water, earth, fire, and wind have no footing, There the stars don't shine, the sun is invisible. There the moon doesn't appear, there darkness is not found. And when a sage, a Brahmin, through sagacity, has realized this for oneself, then from form and formless, from bliss and pain, one is freed. Thank you for your kind attention. And let's see if there's any questions that have arisen about this or other things that have come up in your practice. There was something. There's someone in the
I'm just wondering about the terms the birthless, the deathless, and um, the term not being born again into this world. Is that just another another ways of saying what you've just been saying? And what what right. what? <clears throat> I guess what's possible? Do, does the prolifer- proliferation stop? Mm-hmm. Um, uh, the, the, yeah, pan- great. What, what's the term? Pancha. <laughs> I forget. Papancha. Papancha. Does that just doesn't happen anymore, or it happens but you don't attach to it? What I guess what actually happens in the mind at that point? Well, actually, you can check your own experience because probably I don't know. Unfortunately, I wish I did. What happens in the mind of an arhant? But we can explore what happens in our own minds, right? There are times in our practice or in our lives where the papancha stops. And with the stopping of that, there's some ease. Have you, sound familiar? Yeah. So I think that's something really important to remember is that this, like many teachings, points to an ultimate, but we experience it directly through our own practice. And that question about does not become born again, I'm glad you, that's a, such an important line that comes back again and again. And I think that that line has multiple interpretations. One is that, you know, it's the end of rebirth. But it can also be not born, the you is not born again. And we can have that experience of the you not being born again in the next moment or the next moment. And so we experience a taste of that freedom. Thanks. Can can you differentiate between... um, the self in the in the phrase no self and the essence that leaves the body when we die or whatever it is that is reincarnated if there is such a thing as that well first i'll I'll just say remember that i like to stay with sally's construct of not self because sometimes we can get a little idea that there's nothing right here what leaves the body I don't know. <laughs> right. But I'll, I'll, I'll let Sokni come through on this. He says, oh, he, when asked what gets reborn, he said, your neuroses. <laughs> so it's a good reason to uh, practice a lot and have as few as possible. That in other words, he's pointing to the fact that what is reborn is the clinging, is to what's still hanging on. So knowing not self is a sort of ultimate awakened to com- be completely and continuously uh, in aware that there is not self and experience it completely is awakening it's often talked about that non no greed no aversion no delusion is the experience of no self, which is freedom. Yeah, those all tie together. And exactly how 
they relate, different people will have different interpretations, but they're clearly all directly connected. And the Buddha spoke to those as different, different definitions, really, of freedom. So I don't know if you've ever been with someone when they died, mm-hmm. but it doesn't just feel like their neurosis is what's gone. It feels like there's something else. Yeah, it feels like there's a lot else that leaves, mm. but I don't know mm. what re- what is reborn. Mm. But yeah, I mean, in some ways, I think you're talking about, and if you've been with someone who dies, the we start getting into a realm that we really don't know. Mm-hmm. And what is it like to trust that not knowing? Because it's now we're you're pointing in a different way towards that realm of no subject, no object. That person is no longer a person. And a lot of people on the edge of death drop that uh, I and other. Something is happening there. Mm -hmm. Thank you. This is a real change in uh, question, and I hesitate to bring it up, but um, the idea of right and wrong and illusion in the mind and how to navigate these divisive times and where does notions mm-hmm. of right and wrong, and I feel like, I don't know what, uh, I feel like I can... Um, when I'm alone in the cushion, at times even sending metta to other types mm-hmm. of beings. Um, but it takes very little to be swept up in the maelstrom. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting, um, I, your question is great, because it's very important when we, dro- when we start talking about dropping right and wrong, we all go like, but wait, you know, stuff's happening. And... Um, it doesn't mean dropping what causes harm, what is skillful, what is not skillful. And it's interesting, um, Santakaro Bhikkhu actually talks about this atamayata as a way of standing and saying no to the ways that harm is being done. That it's actually a... Um, that to say no is to reject the ways that greed, aversion, and delusion are creating pain and harm in the world. To say, I'm not buying into that. And I am going to act from a place of non-harming and caring and protecting from that that is being harmed. So this doesn't eliminate that... Another way of saying it is that we'll get into more later in the week is that from emptiness, the natural movement is to compassion. That emptiness doesn't eliminate compassion. That it contained um, situations, but I lose it then the next moment it's lost and, and I'm no longer acting skillfully. 
and that's where it can be really helpful is that sometimes taking that step back is taking a like whoa it's not as it's it's not as i conceive it it is always other than i conceive and i can still respond and i'm still interacting with this world there it's happening but it's not as fixed as our mind and it's the fixedness that often creates our belief in the fixedness that creates the proliferation so watch any place where you fix it's that clinging to the fixed view to the fixed idea of the world that creates the suffering so we'll need to end here and there's another set of um, practice discussions now and continue say one word as we get ready to go once again about continuity so you might even find that before you get up if you're going to a practice discussion please do get up but before you get up you might find at the end of a sit that you collect yourself you orient you make sure you're connected, perhaps knowing when you get up, am I going to stay connected to my feet, my breath, my hands? How am I going to be mindful through this next period? How am I going to be mindful as I go and get a glass of water or move to my walking? Staying very, very connected with yourself all the way through, through that direct experience. I said yourself, but I really should say staying connected to your direct experience, moment after moment. Cultivate that continuity with care. Okay, enjoy your day of practice. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.